Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After spending the last few weeks wrestling through um, God's wrath and, and destruction and catastrophe, we get a moment of a, a sense of a reprieve, and in, even though it's a theme of death, there's this comfort towards the end of this passage. And I'm reminded of my grandpa. Uh, he passed away several years ago, but uh, at the end of his life, he was dealing with uh, chronic back pain and arthritis. He had onset dementia that had been going on for years and couldn't remember people, couldn't remember me at times. And it was a really hard and painful thing, and especially for him who was dealing with all these things. And I remember he passed away, um, and it was sad, but there was sort of a sense of, of comfort that he is with Jesus. And I'll never forget at the funeral, um, which, by the way, my grandpa was a great man. He, he loved Jesus. He told everybody he knew about Jesus. In fact, there were people test, giving testimonies at his funeral about how um, he had shared the gospel with them at one point or another. And I'll never forget my uncle, who's a really interesting guy, kind of have to know him, is giving the eulogy. And he gets up there, and there's the box where my grandpa's ashes were. And he looks at the box, and he says, my dad is not in this dumb box. It was a really strange thing. He yelled it to everybody. He's an evangelist, so you know, he's going he's gonna to preach. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was odd, but it was also very true. You know, there were certainly ashes in that box, but um, my grandpa no longer has any back pain, Right? He's with Jesus. That pain is gone. His, his memory is no longer this thing that haunts him. And, and there's a comfort that in the midst of uh, a life well lived and lost, there was grief, but there was also a joy. A joy of knowing that, that his tears are wiped away. His pain is gone. I think as we look at this, um, as we look at what's happening in this passage, and we'll get to the passage here in a minute, I want to talk a little bit about some misconceptions, I think, that we may have about heaven. I remember during the 2016 election, a, a common phrase that I saw on Facebook uh, was, if we have to choose between these two candidates, I wish Jesus would just take us now. Um, phrases like that, or I wish Jesus would come soon. I wish, you know, that God would make all this go away and Jesus would come quickly. And there's these phrases we often use, which I think, uh, we understand sort of the sentiment behind them, but I think part of the problem is um, we oftentimes see heaven as a sort of escape tool for us to not deal with the reality of what God is doing now in our life. But heaven is not an escape, escape tool. It's not a, 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 a hall pass for being lazy about the responsibilities that he's given us on earth. And our belief in heaven is actually what inspires us to live um, 
and give us hope to live in a world where um, sometimes things are really difficult. No matter what comes, the hope of heaven gives us endurance in the midst of suffering. And so as we look at uh, the inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth, there's a few things I think we should keep in mind. Um, Heaven serves to diminish our dependence on the stuff that this life brings and that we often turn to for comfort. So when we deal with difficult things, one of the things that a proper view of heaven does is it sort of breaks our dependence on the things that bring us comfort in difficult times. Right? We turn to things for comfort, physical things, whether that's money, whether that's stuff, whether that's whatever it might be, things that give us temporary comfort when heaven gives us a view that is eternal. It does not pass away. And thinking about the comforts of heaven is an incredible way to lessen our dependence on earthly comforts. We see this from the Apostle Paul many times in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, excuse me. Fix that. Am I on? Thick one too. Sorry about that. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice Paul says not that our citizenship will be in heaven, but he says our citizenship is in heaven. Now, here, we are not citizens simply of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. His point was you live here now, but there is a a greater reality that you belong to. Um, We see it in 1 Peter when he says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter's talking about focusing our gaze in Christ because it is so much uh, greater than all the things that are going to distract us. He's talking about um, um, fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We see this in the book of Hebrews where the authors are are tracing the, the patriarchs. And one of the interesting things that the writer of Hebrews says is that what sustained them on their journey was that they were looking forward to a city of foundations whose architect and builder is God. What the writer was referring to is the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. He's referring to heaven. It was the hope of heaven that sustained them on their journey. Now, if you're like me, and I know we've talked about this briefly, but you've probably been paying attention to what's going on in the world. It's scary. Um, There's there's a lot of of, uh, scared people right now. And I think that in the midst of any present suffering, whether it be what's going on in war, whether it be what's going on in our our daily struggles, the thing that gives us endurance in the midst of it is the hope of heaven. It's the strength of, of enduring present suffering. So whatever your suffering might be, and I would just ask you to think of your life, whatever ails you, whatever struggles you had with your health, whatever, um, relationally or mentally or, physically you've struggled with, be reminded that the strength to endure present suffering is found in meditating on the joy of future satisfaction. I stole that, by the way, from Sam Storms. Um, I think that's such a powerful reminder that, that meditating on the joy of future satisfaction, that one day all the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, and I actually have this passage, Isaac, you want to bring it on the screen. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here's Paul, right? Paul has experienced immense persecution, immense suffering. He's, he's in prison. He's not experiencing great living conditions. He knows what it's like to be high, to be low. And in the midst of all of his persecution, what does he say? He calls it light and momentary. I think the only reason he can have that perspective is because he indeed has a view of the eternal. So that when he sees all these things in his life that are causing him problems, he says, these are light and momentary. There is something far greater. Now let's get to our passage. Um, verse 11. I'm actually going to go backtrack just a little bit. So Revelation 13 is where we started, but if we're going to go back a couple verses, sort of get the introduction to this passage. It says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders of the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Now it's interesting to me that the angels go from standing to face down. They're never on their knees. Why? Because angels don't have knees. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that as I was reading. I was like, yeah, they don't have knees. Anyway, um, I digress. So they're falling face down. That's the point, right? They're face down on the ground, and they're worshiping God. I'm sorry about that. I don't know why. They're face down on the ground, and the language John used, he says, he says uh, a great multitude that no one can number. It actually sounds remarkably similar uh, to the promises that were given to Abraham. If you remember, um, Abraham was promised he would have innumerable descendants, described as the dust of the earth, the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. And in Genesis 16.10, God said to Abraham, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. I believe that John views the innumerable multitude that we're talking about here in Revelation 7.9 as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. So we're seeing this consummate, full uh, narrative picture of what God is doing in this powerful moment. That promises made centuries earlier are being fulfilled. And then the elder in our text for tonight asks this rhetorical question. He says, who are these people? And John is like, sir, you know. And he responds, these are those who have come like, out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Jesus. Notice what John says here. He doesn't say who came out or who will come out, but he says who come out and why that's important. It implies that something was happening in 96 AD and that something is happening now. What does John mean when he says great tribulation. Now, we talked last week or two weeks ago, we broke down some of the different interpretive lenses to view Revelation. Um, we talked about a, a, a historical view, a, um, a preterist view, a uh, futurist view, and, and sort of an amillennial view. And um, if you are a futurist interpreting this, the great tribulation is referring to something that is going to happen in the future. So sometime down the road, there's going to be a seven-year period, and depending where you are on the spectrum, either before the tribulation, Christians will be raptured to heaven in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, okay? That would be the way you'd interpret these passages. But as I shared, as I put my cards on the table, I tend to take a more 
amillennial view. And so when he uses this term great tribulation, um, I actually think what he means is what he was experiencing then and what we are going to be experiencing all throughout human history. Here's why I think that. The Greek word for tribulation is thalipsis, which means a crushing pressure. And what he's referring to is he's referring to is what happens when kingdoms clash. The best metaphor I could think of is kind of like if you think about um, what causes earthquakes, right? You have these uh, beneath the earth's crust, you have these tectonic plates that are slowly moving. And then occasionally these plates will run into each other and they will create what we know as an earthquake. There's sort of an explosion as a result of this. That crushing pressure is kind of what I believe this word is saying. It's like rocks colliding. That's the thalipsis. It's the kingdom of God colliding with the kingdom of humanity and rebellion against God. And so we see in the midst of that things like war and famine and tyrants come into power. And you see awful things and things uh, that happen in human history. With that in mind, let's try to understand the mind of John. Remember, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. He's the one who's writing down these visions. Um, And it's likely, in his mind, this great tribulation started way back uh, with King Herod. If you remember King Herod, a tyrant, in one sense, he was harsh, he was cruel. He was a brilliant political leader, but but he was very uh, harsh. If you remember, when he heard that someone was uh, being called king of the Jews, right, was born in Bethlehem, what does he do? He calls for every um, boy under two years old to be murdered in Bethlehem. It's a very harsh reaction. It sounds like he's a little insecure. Um, and so you, you look at this, um, this happening, and you kind of get a picture that in John's mind, the great tribulation begins with the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. This is when this, this kingdom of heaven is colliding with this kingdom of humanity and rebellion. And it begins as, as we usher in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. The great tribulation, in a sense, has been on since Jesus came. It was on in John's day as when Jerusalem falls. That was predicted by Jesus, by the way, right? He's seeing this great tribulation in that sense. It was on when Christians have seen these, these, these various trials all throughout human history. In fact, it's on today in many places where there is great conflict of the kingdom of man and sin comes and crushes against the kingdom of God. As Joseph was speaking earlier, you know, sometimes it's hard for us to relate because we can worship in peace. There's comforts that we have to to live in the United States. But if you ask Christians in Rwanda, you ask Christians in Afghanistan, uh, in in Tibet, in different places throughout the world, that is not always the case. They're experiencing probably tribulation throughout their entire life. And this is very much the context in which this book of Revelation is being written. So, okay, remember how John starts his greeting. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow particular in the tribulation, that's that word, delipsis, and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. Okay, and you're going to kind of see this triplet. This is what John does. He says, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Right, these three things go together. It's a theme that John brings up again and again and again. And so we have these two revelations, uh, these two visions in Revelation 7. Okay, and they're sort of held together in a way that helps us keep our balance in the midst of a great tribulation. And then, 
maybe the most important word we see is in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 15. It's the word therefore. Because this word therefore means, it says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. What that, why that word's important is because John is describing the grounds by which people can stand before God. It is not because they kept the law to a good degree. It's not because they were morally upright or good. It's not because of their, ident- their, their ethnic identity. The reason they can stand before God is because of their faithfulness to Christ. And this, friends, is one of the most important themes that John is, is giving us is that it is Christ alone who saves. It is in him alone that we find salvation. Now, we see following this eight blessings. Okay, This is describing heaven. This is describing those who are in the white robes who are going to be with God. Eight blessings they will receive. And I want to look at those quickly. Um, the first of those blessings is that we will stand before the throne of God. Now, whether that means we're able to stand upright um, for very long is doubtful. My guess is like the 24 elders before us, where faces will be on the ground with adoration and worship and joy and being overwhelmed by the presence of God. The second blessing is that we will have the pleasure of serving him day and night in the temple. Now, our service is worship and praise. The word translated for serve here is not the ordinary Greek word that would be used to, to say, I'm going to serve someone. What it actually is referring to is a sacred service in the temple of lifting up prayers and praise. And so notice it's endless. It's day and night of praying and worship together. And then we are told that God will shelter us, the third blessing, with his presence. And the word shelter is, is, uh, literally means he will set his tabernacle over us. This is an allusion to Ezekiel 37, uh, verses 26 to 28. It's a passage in the Old Testament that's a prophecy um, of Israel's protection. And so I'll read it. It says, I will make a covenant of the peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will be my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What this means is you won't need a tornado shelter or a mansion or anything to keep you safe, right? Because you will be in the presence of God forever. Now, the fourth, fifth, and the sixth and seventh blessings are all drawn from Isaiah 49.10, another text that refers to the Israel's restoration. It says, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water and guide them. What does John mean with all of this? I believe that the prophet, uh, it's, it's sort of a prophetic way to summarize every form of physical harm and deprivation and suffering that anyone might endure in this life. And that God will say, in the next life, in the new heaven and new earth, you will not experience these ailments. You will not experience hunger or thirst or pain or suffering. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Now, as a parent trying to figure out how to parent, um, there are one of my favorite parts of Thursday service is I get to drive home with my oldest son loves going over to Mr. Gummy's class. He always learns things. And he always asks me questions. And recently he asked me, Dad, what is, what is heaven and hell? I was like, all right, here we go. I'm trying to explain this to my, at the time, five-year-old. Um, and I said, well, Pierce, you know, 
And I'm thinking, hell, like, I don't want to give them nightmares, but, like, I don't want to sugarcoat it either. So I just said, hell is like being in timeout forever, <laughs> right? It's like normally when I put you in timeout, I, I would give you, like, two minutes, then you can come out. No, no, no. This time you have to go to your room, and the timer is going to be infinity. And he's like, what's infinity? And I was it's the biggest number you can think of. Um, and then heaven I said, in heaven, we're going to worship God forever. He's like, what, is worship, what does that mean? I'm like, well, how do I explain this to a five-year-old? So I was like, all right, it's going to be the place where all of your friends and cousins and aunts and uncles and everyone who loves Jesus is going to be, and there's going to be all the toys in the world, and it's forever. And he goes, I want that now. <laughs> and I thought, Interesting. When we think about heaven, do we say we want to go there now? You know, Paul says in Philippians, I want to be in heaven. I'm in this body. I'm stuck in this body. I want to be in heaven. But he says, I am here now. I've been called here, and I'm going to stay here in this body that's deteriorating away. I think the problem is that too many of us are running from a world that God is running towards. And I think so often we see heaven as this sort of, um, this sort of faraway thing that one day we'll finally get to be there and, and we'll be free from this world. But the reality is God has called us to something now. He's put us here for a reason. Heaven is not an escape tool to get out of here. Heaven is the reason. The hope of heaven is the reason that we stay and follow Jesus. It's the reason we forgive. It's the reason we sacrifice our comfort for others. It's the reason we don't hoard our money and possessions, but we're generous Heaven is the hope of being in a world that often feels like being in hell. And I know there are many people right now who maybe feel like this world is hell. I can just imagine what many of the people going in war-torn countries, specifically in the Ukraine right now, what they're experiencing, the fear, the anxiety, the violence. And I don't know in your life what you're going through in this season, but perhaps you've been through a season or you know someone is going through a season or maybe even right now you're going through a season that feels like hell. The encouragement is that in the midst of our suffering and struggle, we have a hope of heaven. And that hope of heaven is what gives us the strength to endure, that we know that the presence of Christ is with us here. And that the closer we get to death, actually the closer we get to God. And the closer we are to suffering, the irony is that sometimes in the midst of that, it's when we hear God's voice the clearest. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said suffering is God's megaphone to his people. Um, my brother Jake is, a, is in the process of, of being a missionary in Taiwan, and uh, he's got a lot of friends in Ukraine, the missions organization he works with. And one of his friends this morning sent him a video. And it was a video simply asking for prayer. And, and as I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about heaven and thinking about all the stuff that's going on, it was just so heavy on my heart that I, I couldn't help but think that we should close um, sort of this message and this sermon as time to pray for the people of Ukraine um, and people of Russia for that matter. And so I actually, um, I didn't know how to pray. Like, how do you pray in this situation? And, and he actually lays out, uh, from his perspective, how we can pray for them. So I have a quick, short video. Um, you'll want to unmute that, that one, because I think I muted it earlier. But 
We're going to show you a quick video. This is, this is a friend uh, from the Ukraine, and you can hear his story and a little bit about how to pray. Hello, guys. My name is Valera, and I am from Ukraine. So our country woke up today from bomb explosions. Um, there were explosions um, of military bases all over our country. And uh, Russia and Belarus invaded in Ukraine. And they are uh, nearly, uh, really close to Kyiv. So and, uh, I want to ask you to pray for our country. And please, if you know someone, support them with the prayer, with the word of encouragement. And I have three prayer requests for you guys. So first, please pray for our president. Um, we just uh, ask God to guide him and give him wisdom in this really difficult situation in our beautiful and independent country. Uh, please also pray for our military. Uh, for protection for them and yeah just uh, ask God and, and to put the angels around our army to protect and uh, third request it's yeah we just need to pray for heart of aggressor uh, because only God can uh, change his heart only God can change this situation not people not rockets uh, not anything, just God. Only God can change people's hearts. So I ask you to mobilize and to pray and to stay with us for Ukraine uh, because we need your support in this difficult time in our country. So thank you so much. So in closing, uh, I want to take a moment to do some intercessory prayer and uh, I want to encourage you as I pray um, to pray silently as well, you can lift, put your hands, uh, open your hands as a posture of prayer as I spend a, a few minutes just praying for the country of Ukraine. And then um, when, I'm, when I'm done, Joseph and the band, you guys can go ahead and come on up whenever. And we'll, uh, we'll close by worshiping with a song that I think is very fitting for, um, to end the service. So let's, let's take a minute to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of the hope of heaven, of the white robes, of the, 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 the time when there will be no more tears. And we take a second um, to lift up our friends in Ukraine who are, who are going through immense suffering, what I would call, uh, who are going through a great tribulation, where the kingdom of God is crushing up against the kingdoms of man. And there is great pain and suffering and death that is happening right now. And I know many people are scared. Many people are uh, living in fear. And many people are going to lose their life. And I pray that in the midst of this, Lord, that you would bring an end to the violence. Specifically, the three things to pray to God for, for President Zelensky. That you would give him wisdom. That you would give him courage. That you would guide his decisions. That you would... Uh, uh, be with uh, all the leaders in Ukraine to uh, move and, and help, help lead a country that's going through great turmoil and pain and suffering. Lord, we know that Ukraine is, is largely Christian. I think it's like 60% of people identify as Christian, Lord. So I pray that the church would rise up, that in the midst of it, it would become uh, in the midst of a horrible situation that the gospel would spread. 
that there would be good news even in the midst of horrible suffering. Father, I pray for um, the military, those who are um, on the front lines trying to defend their country. Would you protect them? As our friend said, to, to put angels around them, to protect those who are innocent, the women and children, who, are, uh, those who are defenseless and innocent. Would you protect them as well? And Father, um, we pray for the heart of the aggressor. It's a hard prayer to pray. But we know that not people, not rockets, only God can change hearts. As your word says uh, in Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we pray this now that you would work in the hearts of world leaders and diplomats, that you would move them to peace, that you would kill their pride, and that in all of that there would be a great repentance, Lord. God, I pray that you would move hearts to peace. In the midst of all this, God, I pray for our, our country. I pray for our president. Would you guide his decisions? Would you guide the people around him who are in our military and in all the different ways in which we're going to likely respond to all, all that's going on? I just pray um, for everyone who's, who's um, not sure how to help, but we feel the, the need to want to step in because we see something that is unjust. And Lord, so maybe that's our prayer, Lord. We pray for justice. God, we thank you that you've given us the gift of heaven. May that be on our mind every day. As we go through life, as we make decisions, as we put one foot in front of the other, may we do so with the hope of heaven. That you've, we see that you've been given us these bodies, you've given us this life, we've been put here for a purpose. And may that guide us and that view of eternity and heaven guide us as we go into the unknown. Lord, we pray all these things for your beautiful name. Amen.